Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master ChatGPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Caligaris for Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. And today we're doing something a little bit different because we have someone on that I've actually known for, gosh, probably over 16 years, right? Someone who was early in both of our product careers and someone who I thought was just amazing when I worked with her the first time. And I'm like, oh man, one day I might even work for her. And I don't work for her, but I totally could because she's amazing. So she's been in product her entire career. She's been in payments product space for like 15 years. She's been named one of the most influential women in payments in 2022 by American Banker and also one of the top leaders in Arizona this year as well. And like, again, she's also my friend. So welcome, Tiffany. It is a pleasure to have you. I'm so excited to be here and speaking with you. It has been far too long and looking forward to a catch up. Yes. Yes. I am thrilled to have you and to help everyone who hasn't had the pleasure of working with you before. Tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got where you are as the CPO of NMI and why you are so passionate about products. Absolutely. Great to see you again. Great to be here with all of your listeners. Like Becky said, I am Tiffany Johnson, Chief Product Officer of NMI. Um, I'm really relatively new to the company. Been here about seven, almost eight months, but not new to payments or products. I've worked in a number of capacities. I've worked for startups, VC-backed, PE-backed. I've worked for publicly traded companies. I've worked in big four consulting and all in some capacity of embedded payments or, or payment technology and product. And I think that I've really stuck with product because I love solving problems. Hmm. And every day we wake up, we show up and we're solving problems for, for people and making their lives better. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're 100% right. Like at the core of what we do as product people is solve problems, especially if we do it well, <laughs> right? Yes. Understanding the problems of our audience and solving them is, it's a great feeling, right? And it's a good mission to have. And there's a couple of reasons I was, well, lots of reasons I was excited to have you on. But one is, you know, I don't get to talk to a lot of chief product officers that are females. So I think that's really great. And also I think what your NMI, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about NMI, but one of the things that you've told me about it is that it is B to B to C. And I think that is really reflective of a lot of what our listeners have as well. And there are some there are some things that are just the same doing product management for B2B to B to C. And then there are some differences, right? There are some complexities that are added to that that I think will be really fun to dig into. So I'm glad you're here. Absolutely. Excited for the conversation. You know, you mentioned the female CPO and I have to say that I've been blessed with a lot of really strong mentors in my career, both male and female, who have kind of guided me and, and groomed me to be ready for this role. And I have to say it takes a village hmm. to do this. You know, it's it's family support. It's, you know, hiring help when you need it and 
having the grace and the confidence to ask for help. You know, mm. sometimes it's hard as, as yes. busy working moms. And, you know, I was reading a stat a couple of weeks ago that said 50% of females in tech change jobs or get out of the industry by the time they're 35. Oh, well, and it's, I mean, as two people who have always been in tech, like th- there's such joy in there, right? I love mm-hmm. it. And also the more they leave, there's less of us to help evolve it to be able to support the balance, right? Because there are hundred percent things we have to do. I think you're asking for help is true. It can feel like a weakness, right? And it is a strength, but there's other things that as a company and as an industry that can be done, certainly. We've seen a lot of things that happened with COVID that would have been impossible and would never work before that, but it clearly could, right? So there are changes we can continue to make. And when people leave, there are just less voices here to fight for that change. And I think that it is a shame. It is. Yeah. I'll say, and I'll talk a bit more about who NMI is as a company, but in terms of values, I'll say they do a really good job at driving inclusion, diversity, and celebrating women Mm. and making opportunities. Like we have a whole women's network where we work on developing and trying to identify opportunities to to help with growth and help improve that statistic. Love that. Love that. All right. Tell us more about NMI so that we have a good understanding. Absolutely. So NMI, like you said, is a B to B to B to C, and that's not a stutter. That's three Bs to a C. (laughs) (laughs) We are a payment gateway processor at our core. That's what we started. And so we empower small businesses to accept payments Mm. and to have flexibility and choice. You know, so let's say a small business has a merchant account with Silicon Valley Bank and something goes awry. How do they quickly shift (laughs) without impacting their their business and, and their ability to accept payments because that's so core to their survival? So... That's how we started. We started out as a card.present gateway. We added on card present. And now we've continued to build out that value chain to support merchant underwriting. We do automated underwriting. We have a whole merchant relationship management tool. Think Salesforce for merchants with very specific payments capabilities. And then we just announced a couple of weeks ago, a recent acquisition of Mm -hmm. Sphere Commercial, which allows us to actually issue merchant accounts and, and provide some merchant services if needed. Now, One of the unique things with NMI is we do not go directly to the merchant or small business. We are, again, that B2B2C. So we work with a network of partners and give them the tools they need to service their small businesses and merchant customers. Okay. So that you have, I don't want to call them resellers because I'm sure that, but that that you work with, then they work with, are they the gateway or do they work with gateways who then work with the merchants who then, of course, take the customer's credit card? Right. So... NMI connects to over 150 processors. Okay. So we can route transactions to all the, all the big processors and we use our partner network. People might refer to them as ISOs or ISVs okay. and they in turn sell to the merchants and small businesses. So there are in fact three Bs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are three Bs. <laughs> so when we think about the realities of product management in a B to B to B to all the Bs and the C, I think one of the things that just stands out, right, is how do you ensure that you are meeting the needs of your customers, their customers, their customers, and then ultimately the consumer at the end, right? So how do you understand all of those places and what the need is? It's a tricky dynamic and especially coming from, you know, I bounced between the B2B and the direct-to-consumer and your persona mapping, your journey mapping, your roadmap it all shifts a bit. Mm-hmm. So in direct to consumer, you're focused on the needs of the person 
consuming and using the product. And typically they're a decision maker and a buyer persona yep. and user all in, in one. Whereas when you get into B2B to C, you're not just focused on the buyer persona, you're focused on the ideal customer profile. So you're mm. you're not just targeting the person purchasing the product, but you're targeting what kind of company profile will benefit from your goods or services. Mm. And then you have to take that the next step. And what are their, because they're obviously selling something, you're enabling them to be successful in whatever their primary business is. What are they in turn doing? What problems are they solving for their customer? And who is their ICP, I would think, right? Who's their ideal customer, depending on what kind of merchants they went after or where those merchants are and what kind of people. Yeah, that is a lot of personas. Exactly. (laughs) So for every feature you bring to life, you're not just doing a single journey map. You're doing a journey map for your initial customer, how do they buy the thing? But then how do they turn around and sell it or use it for their customer? And then how does that merchant or small business turn around and sell it for theirs? So one example, we recently just launched a text-to-pay capability. So the ability to send out a text message and, you know, you as if you're trying to buy something or pay a painter who just came to your house, mm-hmm. you can your text message and it's secure, PCI compliant, all the rest. Well, it seems pretty straightforward, but when you start mapping that out, it's, okay, Yes, how does Becky as a consumer buy her painting? But what was everything leading up to that? Mm. How how did that service provider know that that was a capability to even enable to send that to Becky? And so how does that small business enable it, get trained on it, know how mm. to use it, know how to pay for it? And you go upstream from there and how does the partner know how to sell it to their merchants? So this text-to-pay capability, they had to configure it somehow. They had to enroll the merchant. They had to train them. And then even internally at NMI, you need to think about your finance team, your operations team. How do you support it? How do you answer calls? You know, so when you take the end user experience, you kind of have to go every layer mm-hmm. up and solve the journey for each of those Bs and the supply chain. Yeah, yeah. How do you and your organization, how have you sort of designed your organization in order to make sure that you understand each level and are able to like map out that journey? Absolutely. And it's, I love how you said organized your your entire company because it's mm-hmm. more than product, right? Mm, A lot of people so. focus in on how do we rally our product managers around specific products, but it's more than that. It's your account management team. It's your sales team. It's your support team, the call center. It's your your finance team. And how do you track P&Ls? So it's how do you rally everybody around that enablement? And I'll say one thing we really focus on is every time a new product goes live, we train the trainers. So we have a whole part, what we call a partner enablement team. Mm -hmm. And that team will go out and do, bi-weekly, we have webinars where we say, hey, here's new features coming out. Come and learn about it. Let us teach you partners how to sell it to your merchants. We're going to give you sales materials that are white label that you can reskin and pitch and how do we help you be successful? Mm-hmm. And then from a support team perspective, you know, we need to train them. Okay, if a partner calls with a question, say this. If a merchant calls with a question, mm-hmm. say this. And really trying to bring that experience and that journey across all of the different functional areas in the company. So it's both getting access and understanding, but then sharing that understanding, I would think, is a challenge. Because to your point, everybody needs to know but it is always the easiest thing to teach someone is something you can do like in a nursery rhyme level, right? Like there's one single truth. Here's our story. Ta-da. Mm-hmm. I can get you all around there. You can all know how to march this. But this is, I, you need to be able to understand which group you're talking to and then know how to flavor it to that. So there is a lot more. So that 
amount of enablement that goes in both to your internal teams and to their and to your partners. And again, it all starts to get to like matrixly more complicated. So I imagine you guys spend a good amount of time thinking about sales enablement or enablement in general. We do. Absolutely. And it's, you know, in a direct to consumer world, it's how do you train a user to use it? Yep. But in this world, it's how do you train your customer to use it and sell it? Mm -hmm. How do you train their customer to use it and sell it? And, you know, how do you kind of, it's more than just the adoption and the usage and the engagement of, of that end user. It's how do you empower them to win? Because when when your partners win, you win. Yeah. And, and you talked about webinars and white labels. Are there other tools that you use either for internal enablement or external enablement that you think are like, these ones, these are winners. You should all try this. So we also do quarterly partner events um, mm-hmm. where we invite people in person to come. We have live demos set up. Most of our product team is there to answer questions. We try to be present at a lot of the the big trade shows so that we can get feedback and have those live conversations. We have account managers that are assigned to each of our partners, and we try to go through things like quarterly roadmaps, try to get feedback. And then one of the things I'm quite excited about for next year is we're going to be building out kind of a paint by numbers guide that Ooh. will be a toolkit or a recipe. You know, if you think about the APIs we provide today as ingredients. We're going to be trying to think about how do those ingredients fold together to build different recipes and tying those recipes together with with a real cookbook that's, that yeah. teaches even the most novice chef how to, how to make a great meal. Love it. Love it. And I would think too, the challenge with that partner enablement to me is always not just the right tools, but like I don't own their attention in the same way that I own my internal support team, right? Not that you want to act like you own their tent, but you do. You have the ability to control and the ability to put, you know, objectives in place based on those things that you don't have that same degree as partners. So how do you motivate the partners to care, right? for lack of a better word? I think it depends on, on the product and the business. Fortunately, in our line of business, the partner's success de- depends on us. I mean, they're... Mm, yep. That's, rep, they're money selling. is always a good motivator. Yes. yes. <laughs> Money and experience and and trying to help them, you know, service their merchants because merchants are not typically in the business to accept payments. Payments is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. They want to be, you know, yes. an Etsy shop or they want to be a dry cleaner. Or they want to be, you know, a Ninja Warrior, you know, <laughs> franchise. Like that's their core business. And payments is just a means to an end. And mm-hmm. so how do we make that as seamless and, and embedded and easy as possible? That's a good point. Like for your merchants, for the end merchant you are successful when they don't think about you at all. Exactly. Right. The best payment experience is the one that never happened. You know, you think about Uber and you just get out of the car and it just takes care of itself on the back end. I'm so used to Uber that when I take a taxi, like I forget that I have to pay. (laughs) Like I obviously do. No, there's no taxi cab coming after me, but like you're just so used to it. Okay. And I'll go. And it's like, oh wait, no, I have got to like get my credit card out. And then their, their credit card machines never work. But yes, exactly. I want it to just be seamless. Exactly. Exactly. So as you think about this, then as, as the chief product officer, right. And you think about the roadmap, how do you handle when those different buyers and personas and user personas have different priorities, right? How do you prioritize which personas to lean into? And what do you do when they seem to sort of compete? It's a really great question. And I, I think that conflict typically comes up when you're working on a reactive feature list roadmap. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, here's a checklist of all the things people have asked me to do. And this person's louder than that person. Yes. And it's a lot harder to navigate those discussions when, you, when your roadmap is more of that feature list. I think that once you transition into more of an outcome-based roadmap where you're targeted on KPIs that you're trying to move, you're targeted at behaviors you're trying to influence, what are the pains and gains you're trying to solve? And I found that once you start talking in more of that outcome-driven format, that contention gets a lot easier because mm. often your merchants and your partners are trying to solve the same problem. Yes. They just might have a different idea on how to get there. So when you focus on that problem to be solved, it tends to get a lot easier. I love that because often if you went by like their request, right, they they have the same problem, how they've talked about the problem and potentially how in their mind the solution looks could feel really different, right? And so if you don't dig into that to understand the problem, then it it does look like you are measuring and, and prioritizing against each other. And I have to figure out like, you know, a weighted version for each persona. But because at the end of the day, everyone in that value chain wants to be able to take the customer's money seamlessly wherever they need it, right? Exactly. That the problems, the problems themselves would often be very aligned. Absolutely. So how do you make sure that your team is focused not on features, but on problems? Because, you know, at Pragmatic, we're very passionate about this, Tiffany. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I know. And I've, I've learned a lot from Pragmatic. I will say that we it's an evolution, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that some of it has to do with the maturity of the organization as well. A lot mm-hmm. of times, you know, in, in an earlier stage startup, you want to say yes to everyone. You want to do all the things because you, you need that business. But then it's important as you kind of graduate from startup to scale up that you start to shift that focus and be intentional and realize that you can't say yes to everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just not scalable. and during that startup to scale up migration, making sure you have the data and insights and and ability to measure is a critical first step. Because as soon as you start talking about, you know, I want to drive approval of rates up by 5%. And here's the four things. My hypothesis is here's the four things that will achieve that. Or I want to drive engagement by X. And then you start to kind of rally those features around those themes. But Mm -hmm. in order to to make that migration, you have to have a data baseline so that you can measure measure those outcomes. Yes, yes. So you focus on problems and move away from features by focusing on outcomes. And when you make those the goals and you sort of set all of the conversations and the reward systems, for lack of a better word, around that, that's where you start to get people to stop thinking about, I delivered this out the door versus I have helped someone do this job or solve this problem. Yeah. But to your point, it is, it's going to be a work in progress for everyone. So everyone who's listening is like, we don't do that yet. Yes. No, that's okay. Right. <laughs> you know, I was talking to a friend and this is an example that, that maybe resonates and illustrates it where, you know, partner said, I want the ability to save for that password, reset my password in the portal. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Right now they had to call the support and get their passwords. So product and engineering went and they added a link for forgot password, but the call volume didn't decrease. And when they started to peel it back, they realized, well, nobody has email addresses on file and we don't have 2FA. So how do we send an email for them to reset the password? You know, so when you get a feature list, okay, yes, I asked for for password. The desired outcome is really reduced call volume so people can self-service. And when you start with that end in mind, it's easier to tease out how to actually really solve the problem more than just adding a link on a page. 
No, that's a great example too, right? Like I did what you did and we're all proud of ourselves because maybe we got it through from like requests to output really fast and we're all like high-fiving each other. And then we're like, oh, that didn't, didn't do anything. Do anything. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. Yes. Okay. So we talked about how do you understand all these? How do you train all of them? How do you like prioritize? Because they all have sharing this, the same goal states. How do you know that you're being successful at every level, right? That there's what you've done and there's satisfaction and there's match at each of the, the B to B to B to C. So one of the things we have done in our product org is aligned around what we call value streams. Mm. And so we have a value stream that's centered on all things payment processing. In all of our product engineering, everyone is aligned around that theme or that value stream. Then we have a value stream for our merchant relationship management. So that's kind of your entity lifecycle, your onboarding, the ongoing care and feeding of, of that entity. And then our third value stream is around extensions and value-added services. Hmm. What are all those add-ons that our partners can, can sell or make available for their, their merchants? And what we've done within these is it becomes a cross-functional team that's empowered to make decisions within that team. So if they say, hey, I want to pull people from over here and move them over here to achieve the goal. It gives them the ability to do that within their value stream. Hmm. And what that forces is they get to intimately know the problems that they're trying to solve and working with those customers, working with those CAMs, listening then on support calls so that they can work and prioritize within those value streams on the most impactful changes that they can do. So let me just make sure. So you've organized your product team into three different value streams. Mm -hmm. And those value streams are meant to do deliver that value across all of the stages, right? Like it's end to end from there. So it is, again, you've, you've not done the, I'm going to organize it by persona, which would make them seem competitive, but like the end to end journey across all of those touch points, that makes a ton of sense. Right. And then again, their understanding of that gets deeper and deeper. Are there areas where those three value streams have to touch, right? Like, or coordinate handoffs, those kind of things. Absolutely. There's always going to be big strategic initiatives, you know, security or platform upgrades or, <laughs> yes. or, or, you know, like I said, we just completed our, our acquisition a couple of weeks ago. It's commercial and that will hmm. impact all the value streams. So there's still coordination within it. But to the extent possible, we, we do try to empower those teams to kind of own their own destiny. Yeah. That's interesting with the acquisition. Is it within one of those value streams or does it caught equally across three? It will certainly influence, you know, one more than others, mm, but okay. something strategic will impact all. all yes. I mean, it, yes. An acquisition will, will impact everything. But that's also, I would think, an interesting consideration of which acquisitions to do is how it fits into the value streams there, because it would certainly be easier to align and assimilate if it is that way as well. Yep. Well, we could spend a whole lot of time, Tiffany, talking about what do you do with the product team that you just acquired and how do you integrate them in? <laughs> but it's only been a week, so I won't, I won't, I won't make you talk about that yet. But everyone's listening and thinking, wow, dang, B to B to B to C is complicated. But I also, I happen to know that is not the only complication you have. You also have, you serve different geographies. And anyone who's spent any time in the payment space, even if you hadn't, you could probably surmise, it's pretty different depending on the locations you are, the rules, the regulations, things like that. So let's just talk a little bit about how within this already thinking, you know, complex organizations, you also think about the sort of global markets that you serve. Absolutely. And 
NMI is, we have presence in US, Canada, UK, some of Europe, and then with the acquisition, we just expanded to Australia as Hmm. well. So we definitely have a, a global footprint. The way we've structured it is more of a centralized product team. The services are product globally. Okay. Now, from some of the support functions, it's critical to have boots on the ground to understand mm. regulation and nuances of the region, you know, both in finance and legal and making sure that we have those experts that can weigh into the global product strategy. And typically, we'll look at something like GDPR, you know, which is a mm-hmm. data privacy regulation that's really big in UK Europe. It hasn't come to the US yet, but we're starting to see flavors of it, like with CCPA, with the California, you know, their light version of GDPR. And so what we do is we we try to understand the implications in that region and then look for what is the lowest common denominator that's makes sense from a cost perspective, but hmm. but also from what's best for our customers. I mean, typically if there's regulation in another region, often, you know, it's especially in payments, Europe and UK tends to be a little ahead of the US. So oftentimes it's kind of foreshadowing on what's to come. So we do try to to build in those best practices as best we can, but our certainly focused on the the regional nuances. Yeah. And you're right. I'm I'm thinking about, you know, you can see Europe sort of as a leading piece of where it's coming. So, and that way it can help from just a prioritization perspective, right? If I'm not saying this is the case in MMI, but if your European market wasn't very large, it could be hard to prioritize those things. It helps knowing that if I invest in that structure now, it will be leveraged. It will make me more ready and it will be less expensive later on when I'm having to solve this problem for the larger share of my market. Right, right. And you mentioned that there were sort of boots on the street in those areas. How do they report back? Like, not to, the, as I say, the mothership, that sounds terrible. But how do they wrote, <laughs> report back to the like centralized product team to ensure that there is enough understanding of the nuances of the local markets that it is reflected in your plans. So you call it the mothership. We call it the beehive mentality. (laughs) (laughs) Same, same. The way we think about it is, you know, the bees come into the hive, we share the information, we exchange, then they go out and they, you know, fertilize their flowers and then they come back and we share and then we go out. And we have that structure across all of our different areas from Hmm. parks to engineering, to finance, to sales. And we also have what we call an ELT, our extended leadership team that meets weekly. And we share the cross-functional updates. We discuss any areas of entropy that need to be addressed and we resolve it or we have the takeaways. And then all of these cross-functional areas go out and support our kind of regional objectives or our business objectives. And then, so that's sort of the the model, not the mothership, but the, the beehive. The beehive. I like that. It makes it very clear. And the nice thing about the beehive too, is that all of those people that go out to pollinate back in, you know, they're important. And the mothership just sounds like I'm going to zoom you up. So beehive, I might steal it. All right. So I know throughout your career, right, your problem focused is something that you bring to all of the organizations you work for. And that sometimes they're like, yeah, of course, we totally believe that. And sometimes you have to advocate for that a little bit more, right? And I just think it would be great advice for our listeners, if you don't mind, to talk about some of the the ways and things you've done to advocate for that sort of problem focus. It's a good question. And I would say different leadership responds very differently. Mm, you know, a lot true. of people are just very, they're used to the, the feature list roadmap. They're used to saying, hey, this is going to be committed in Q2. 
who cares if it actually gets committed in Q2, but they have a slide to put in front of people who <laughs> matters. And I, I think some of it is it works. Like you, hmm. you have to start, you Show have to start success. and start hmm. small, start with, start with storytelling and saying, Hey, I'm, instead of launching a new feature, I'm going to improve, like I mentioned before, I'm going to improve approval rates or I'm going mm-hmm. to reduce fraud. And some of it is just start small. How do you talk about things? How, how do you talk about success? How do you give high fives for wins? Then mm. you start pulling that into quarterly goals. And instead of a laundry list of all the to-do things that you want to focus on the quarter, start talking about what are the needles you think you can influence on your dashboard this quarter. And even if people aren't used to that methodology, it is so easy to understand when you yeah. start talking yep. in those terms. It's hard, it's hard to go back once you get that momentum. It's really smart, right? It's small steps and it's language shift, right? And you can shift it as you move. And like you said, once they see it, they don't want to go back the other way. They don't want to go back talking to features. They're like, no, I solved the problem you put on me. This is great. But I think we do often think, well, I have to go and evangelize and it must come from here down. And like, that's lovely. And for some companies, they're like, oh, that's why they brought you in, right? Sometimes you get hired because they're like, ooh, we need to do this, but we don't really know how. So I'm going to bring someone in who has. That, those are great. And sometimes going to do it through a different kind of a, a groundswell message. But I think that's good advice, Tiffany. Which actually brings me to my last question that I ask every episode, which is based Based on everything we talked today, what are two things you would have people do differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today? Ooh, two things to do differently based on our talk today. I would say data, 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 Mm. like understand your product and your metrics and how that folds into where you're headed and the storytelling around that data and start talking in, in those terms, I would say is the first thing. The second would be in the B2B2C world, like we talked about, just understand the different layers and that you have to do multiple journey maps because mm. a new mm. product launch has to solve for each of those companies, the buyer personas within each of those different tiers in the B2B2C space. So don't skimp on your journey mapping in your experience. <laughs> I think that's always good advice. I think people get overwhelmed sometimes by the idea of journey mapping and then they're going to go, oh my gosh, now I only have to do one. Rebecca and Tiffany say I have to do more. <laughs> but yes, yes, you do. Well, <laughs> so, in the long run, I promise. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, 100%. Those and positioning documents, two things that can be painful when you do them, but I think really do pay dividends. So Tiffany, it was a very much a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for sharing your perspectives and your experience and so many of the lessons that you've learned along the way. I am confident that our listeners will enjoy it. Thank you for having me. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>